the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. Praise to the God who reigns above. Moses has been giving his goodbye speech to the nation of Israel just before they begin their journey of conquering the Promised Land. God reminds them through Moses that they were to love God supremely and to obey his word once they were in the land of promise. Last we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 26 that the Israelites were to give the priests a tithe of their harvest every year. Also, every third year, their tithe would be given unto the poor and needy, the orphan and the widow. We continue looking at this special third-year offering as we join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 13. Verse 13, you would say before the Lord your God, you would have to go to the tabernacle and you'd make this declaration before the Lord. You would say, I have brought away the hallowed things out of mine house. Hallowed means something which is dedicated to God. So the idea is as they were taking that harvest that year, every time they would take it in, they would set aside 10%. That's for the Lord it's for the Lord. It's for the Lord. When the time came and the harvest was done, you would take that 10% and then you would give it to the Levite and to those who were in need, usually in some type of big festival celebration. And then you'd go before the Lord and say, Lord, everything I set aside as the harvest was coming in, we set aside that 10%. He says, every bit of it, I gave it to you. He says, I've set aside, brought away the hollow things out of my house and I have given them unto the Levite and all those in need, just like you commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, neither have I forgotten them. What a powerful statement to make. I mean, that you would come and make this before the Lord. Lord, I'm not doing this out of ritual. I'm not doing this at the last minute to appease you. I have planned this from the beginning in obedience and out of love for you. That's a different way to approach giving, isn't it? Way different. Different way to approach any act of obedience or any act of worship before the Lord. But I think it teaches us a very important lesson. True obedience happens long before the moment that requires it. True obedience happens long before the moment that requires it. My old pastor, he said, my very first pastor, he said, a quality decision is one that negates the need for any further decisions. Make quality decisions in your life. And that always stuck with me because I thought the idea is if I'm making this choice now, I don't have to make a choice down the road, right? I'm choosing right now to do this. And so then when the moment comes when it's harder, you say the choice is already made. This is what I'm gonna do. And then you follow through. That's what this declaration is here. Lord, I made a commitment to obey you the minute my harvest started coming in. And Lord, I have now followed through with that commitment. If you have failed to settle some area of obedience beforehand, that can often be why you will struggle with compromise when temptation hits. You've never really made the choice to to do the right thing. Now, in this case, the person, they did settle it. So when the temptation came, they didn't give in. Look at verse 14. I have not eaten thereof in my morning, neither have I taken away aught thereof for any unclean use, nor have I given any of it for the dead. But I've hearkened unto the voice of the Lord my God and have done according to all that you 
have commanded me. Mourning, if someone died in the family, it would be tempting to use that food for the various mourning feasts they would have or to pay for the funeral and for the burial. It's not like all those things were free back then either. I mean, one of the worst things during the time when someone loses a loved one is having to figure out all the finances of it. You know, a lot of times my job is to come in as a pastor and just to say, hey, I'll make that phone call for you or hey, I know somebody that might be able to help you out with that. That can be brutal. You've just lost someone dear to you and now you're staring, you know, a massive bill in the face of how you're going to pay for a burial or for a casket or for a funeral or for a family to get together and have a big time of eating together. I mean, it, it can be overwhelming. Even in such a difficult time like that, he says, I didn't use it for any of that stuff. In addition, even if you had used only a little and not a lot, you would have made the entire batch of food unclean by coming into contact with that food after being in proximity to a dead body. That's just how it worked back then. You were unclean if you did that. The idea here is that no compromise was made. They had settled it in their heart from the very beginning and they followed through. I would encourage you, when it, particularly when it concerns the area of giving, it can be a hard decision, especially if finances are tight. Hey, Lord, how can I give you anything? And here's what I would tell you to do. Ask the Lord, say, Lord, what do you want me to give? What do you want me to give? And whatever the Lord tells you, you commit right then and there and say, Lord, I will do this in obedience to you no matter what. I promise you, the Lord will supply all your needs through his riches and glory. It's his promise and his word. He says that if, if you honor me in this, I will take care of everything else. All these things shall be added unto you. Ask the Lord what he wants you to give and you be faithful and obedient. Make the decision there to do it on a regular basis, no matter what. On the basis that this person had been obedient to the Lord, they would then make a request. And it's a very interesting request because it's not what you would expect. I know when I was reading through, I expected to see the next verse say, now, Lord, I've been obedient to you by giving you this portion first. Lord, will you please bless my life, bless my work, bless my finances and prosper me. That's what I expected to see. And as I examined it more, I realized that's not at all what's going on here. Verse 15, this is the request. He says, look down from your holy habitation, from heaven, and bless your, who? Your people, Israel, and the land which you have given us as you swear unto our fathers, a land that flows with milk and honey. You know what's interesting about this? This is a request not for personal blessing, but for national blessing. It's a request for national blessing. Again, look down. God sees everything at all times. It's not that they're saying, God, you haven't been watching. No, they're asking God to take an active role in what he sees. Lord, look down and where? From your holy habitation. Heaven is a perfect place where everything is done as God wants. That's why we are taught to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. How? On earth as it is in heaven. How is God's kingdom in heaven? God's in charge. Nobody else calls the shots. How is God's will done? Perfectly in heaven. Everything is done exactly as it's supposed to be. We want that here, don't you? I I don't want any more of this mess. I I want his kingdom. I want his will to be done here. That's what's best. So Lord, look down from that place of perfection, the place where everything's done as it should be, and bless your people, Israel. Bless this land that you have given to us just like you promised us. See, this wasn't about personal blessing. It was about national blessing. And what I think is interesting is that when God's people are caring for the hurting and the disadvantaged that are in their midst, then is when we can pray such a prayer. I think oftentimes as Christians, we look at our society and we go, man, it's a mess. There's no fear of God. I didn't see it because I wasn't watching the Thanksgiving Day Parade. But, you know, my wife has to explain to my daughter why two women are kissing on the Thanksgiving Parade for crying out loud. Is that really necessary? It's easy to see all that, though, and to get discouraged or to get frustrated, in order to lose hope, or whatever it might be. And what's interesting is that 
a recipe for blessing is not necessarily getting everybody to do the right things. Everybody has stopped doing all their wrong things. It's if God's people will begin to take care of those that are around them. If God's people will begin to exhibit his love. If God's people will repent. If God's people will humble themselves. That's usually the recipe we see for national blessing. When I look at that, then there's every bit of hope because that's something we can do. Let me ask you a question. Can we change the culture around us? I can't change the culture around us. No more than I I can change the very children in my own home. I can try to influence them. I can try to be a good example. But at some point, they have to make the right choices. And it's the same thing for everybody in your sphere of influence. You can be the perfect witness. You can love them. You can do all those things. And and God could be working on their heart, but they just choose to reject it. Then they're not going to change. And our culture won't change. And if we look at that, we will lose hope very quickly. On the other hand, if we look at this and we say, Lord, could you bless my nation? Could you bless my city? Could you bless my neighborhood? I've sought to reach out to all the people around me that I know who are hurting. I've sought to be generous. I've sought to be hospitable in my sphere of influence, Lord. Lord, will you do the part I can't do? Will you supernaturally work in our culture? I think that's a way better way to look at life, a way better way to approach a culture that is moving further and further away from the Lord. You know, so often we see in the Old Testament, it's not even often, it's time and time again, the Lord will challenge Israel and he will say to them, you have forsaken the orphan, you've forsaken the widow, you have forsaken those who are hurting, you have forsaken the needy, you have totally abandoned them, you've taken advantage of them instead. You know, it's funny, we would expect him to come and go, the idolatry and the immorality and this, and God does hit him there too. But he doesn't leave that out. It is the one consistent thing that Israel failed in. God was always upset with them about that. And I wonder if Israel looked around and goes, I can't get rid of that idol grove over there, but I can help those who are hurting around me. I can do what I can do. I wonder if the Lord may have done more things in Israel rather than them experiencing his judgment. And you may even be sitting there and going, what can I do? There's far more need than I have the ability to supply you're right. But God's not telling you to fix that. It's so funny how we are. You know, we, we, we swing to one pendulum or the other. Either it's all about social justice or we don't care about anything. And, and that neither is supposed to be the way we're to be as Christians. We can't look and say, well, this is where all our focus needs to be. Feed the poor and do all this and do all that. We can't fix those things. Jesus said the poor you'll have with you always. We're never going to be able to erase poverty. Talk about a goal, setting up a goal that you will automatically fail in. Only Jesus can do that. God's not telling you to fix poverty. He's telling us to be generous and caring, right? That's what he's telling us to do. And I think it's beautiful. It's just what Pastor Chuck taught us. Do your best and commit the rest. We do our part and then we pray for God to do what we can't. Lord, I can't change the culture. I can't bring revival, but I can be generous. I can be hospitable. I can be caring to the people who are in need around me. I can love. I can shine my light. I can preach the gospel. I can do that. So Lord, I want to be faithful doing that. And so I ask you tonight, are you doing your part? It's easy to look at politicians or look at the culture and blame that for the mess our nation's in. I tend to look a little bit more here. Lord, what can I do differently? I know I need to do better because I fully believe if, if the church would step up to the plate and say, we're going to love the community, we're going to serve them, we're going to preach the gospel, we're going to stick to the scripture, we're going to love Jesus, I want to love each other. I think revival would come. Maybe that's just me. Are you doing your part? And are you praying for God to do what you can't? That's what Israel was supposed to do. And I think it's probably what we should be trying to do too.
Well, verse 16, we get now to Moses, who closes out his speech finally. He says, this day, the Lord your God has commanded you to do these statutes and judgments. You shall therefore keep and do them with all your heart and with all your soul. This day, remember, all 26 chapters are one speech. So this all took place in one day. You thought I preached for a long time. He says, this day the Lord your God has commanded you to do these statutes and judgments. The statutes were God's regulations. The judgments were the legal rights that God gave to people. These show God's standard, what's right and what's wrong. And they show God's heart, what he thinks about people and how they're to be treated. I have taught you those things. The Lord has commanded you these things. Now you need to keep them and do them with all your heart, with all your soul. You need to love God supremely by keeping these commands. We have covered in these 26 chapters a whole lot of laws that don't specifically apply to us today, right? Like these tithe laws, the principles apply, but the specific laws don't apply, right? But my hope is that in these 26 chapters of lots of commands, in that you've seen God's standard and you've seen God's heart. Because like tonight, while we may not give our entire tithe to the disadvantaged or to those who serve in the ministry every three years, we do in the study see our need to be generous, right? We see our need to be obedient. That's what I hope you've taken away from each of these studies is the spiritual part of the law, the principle behind it. And my second hope as we close out this first speech is that in seeing those things, the heart of God, God's standard, that your commitment will be the same as Israel made here. Verse 17, he says, and you have avouched the Lord this day to be your God and to walk in his ways and to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and to hearken unto his voice. Moses here reminds them of the commitment they made. The word avouched, it means to make a declaration, to make a promise. He says, you have made a promise. You have made a declaration. It's four of them. Israel promised four things to God. Number one, that he would be their God. He would be their God. And I ask you tonight, you know, have you done that? You know, have you made that declaration? Lord, you're gonna be my God. Nothing else will be more important to me than you. They made that declaration. That's, that's something we should make too. Secondly, they made a declaration that they would walk in his ways. To love what he loves is what that means. To walk means to do life. In his ways, it's, it's God's way of living, God's way of doing life. I'm gonna do life your way of doing it, Lord. I'm gonna love what you love. They had made a declaration they would do that, number two. Number three, that they would keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments. The third commitment they had made was to do what he says. One, they would, he would be their God. Number two, that they would love what he loves. Number three, that they would do what he says. That they would obey his standard. They would obey his heart and they would obey his will. We've looked at those three words all throughout Deuteronomy. His statutes, his regulations, his standards, his commandments. Those, those are just, you know, his will, what he wants us to do. And then his judgments, you know, how to treat other people, his heart. God still has those things today. He still has standards of right and wrong. He still has a will for our lives and he still has a way he wants us to treat other people. And so they had committed and declared, Lord, we're gonna do what you say. We're gonna obey your will, your heart, and your standard. And lastly, to hearken unto his voice. Number four, they would... They made a declaration that they would follow wherever he led them. They would follow wherever he led them. And you know what? That's a New Testament idea too. Because in John chapter 10, Jesus, referring to his sheep, describes them this way. He says in John 10, 27 and 28, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life 
and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. I mean, that's what a sheep does. It follows its shepherd. You know, so often I think we look at God's law as something that doesn't apply to us. The Old Testament has been derided in the church recently by famous men. Men who have very large congregations. You know, why would we study the Old Testament? We're under the New Covenant. Listen, certainly Israel's civil and ceremonial laws don't apply to us. But all four of these commitments are repeated by believers in the New Testament. You will be my God, right? What did, what did Thomas say on his knees? He fell on his knees and he said, my, my God, right? You know, you are my God, my Lord and my God. That's what he said to Jesus. You'll be my God. To love what he loves. That's a New Testament idea. To do what he says, that's a New Testament idea. And to follow where he leads, as we just read in John, that's a New Testament idea. Just because maybe some civil and ceremonial laws don't apply to us, the heart behind them, we see God's heart, we see his standards, we see his will for our lives, and we can make these same commitments that Israel made. And and I ask you tonight, have you made them? Have you made him your God? Have you chosen to love what he loves, to do what he says, and to follow where he leads you? Our commitments are always made in light of God's commitment to us. And so Moses closes out by reminding them, not just of their commitment, but of God's commitment. For he says also, verse 18, and the Lord, he has avouched you this day. He has declared you this day to be his peculiar people, his treasured possession. God here declares, his declaration includes two promises and two commands. He has declared and promised that you would be his treasured possession as he has promised you. And here's the first command that you should keep all his commandments. And here's another declaration. He would make you high above all nations, which he has made in praise, in name, and in honor. And then the second command, that you may be a holy people, a separated people, a different people unto the Lord your God as he has spoken. Israel was supposed to obey God and be different than the other nations around them. And God in turn would treat them as his special treasure and lift them up above every other nation. Did God promise any of that to us? Does our covenant require us to obey those two commands? Yes and no. God did make us his treasured possession. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, it says, For you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, a treasured people is what that means. We are his treasured possession. And he has called us out of darkness into the kingdom of his light, into his marvelous light that we should show forth his praises. We are his special people, so God's made that promise to us. But God made no such promise, though, to exalt the church. We are not a nation. Jesus, in fact, said otherwise would happen to the church. In John 15, verses 18 through 21, he didn't say we'd be prospered and lifted up above everyone else. He said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, then you should know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, then the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but because I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you, that the servant is not greater than his Lord? So if they've persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they've kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Down in chapter 16, verse 1, he said, These things have I spoken unto you so that you should not be offended. We should not be surprised when we're persecuted or mistreated for our faith. For he says, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Eh? The time comes that whosoever kills you will think he's doing God service. And these things they will do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you to that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you about them. So we don't have Israel's promise to prosper and be a great nation or anything like that. That's not our promise. That's Israel's promise. 
And what about the commands? Is that how our covenant works? Well, we are commanded to obey God and we're commanded to be holy. Both of those things are found in the New Testament. But our relationship with God and his blessings are not dependent upon us doing so perfectly. It's based on our faith in Christ's perfect observance of those two things. That he was perfectly holy and he perfectly obeyed the Lord. And so in Christ, we have fulfilled those commands and therefore God can always bless us. Which is the primary difference between the old and the new covenant the Old Testament and the New Testament. We may not be a people with national promises, but we do have a better deal. Amen? God has already made it so that we've fulfilled his requirements. And so now we enter into them by faith. So it says, if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And when we're saved, the Bible says we are joint heirs with Christ. Going through the adoption process has changed my perspective on some scripture. I never really thought about those words a whole lot, what it means to be a joint heir. When the two children we adopt, when they, all the legal processes are through, they're going to turn to those kids and they're going to say, they will now be a part of our family. Nothing will be any different about them from any of my biological children. Nothing. And that's how it is with the Lord. We are joint heirs with Christ. Like everything that Jesus has is ours. Can you fathom that? Now, I'm not God's natural born son. No way. No way in the world. There's only one begotten son of God, Jesus. But I'm an adopted child of God. I'm his son fully and completely as much as Jesus is, even though I'm not begotten by him. Isn't that cool? That's our position in him, the position that this new covenant gives to us, all because of the fact that Christ already fulfilled all those requirements of the law for us. So by faith, that's right, it is worth a woo-hoo. By faith, we walk in that. We experience his blessings, his hand on our lives, and he can use us to touch others. Let's all stand. Lord, we do thank you for adopting us as your sons and daughters. We thank you, Lord, that you've elevated us to the place of a joint heir, that we have this beautiful position in you. Thank you for fulfilling all the law for us, Lord. We could never have done it. Thank you for giving us a better deal whereby we can draw near to you and don't have to stay away. We don't need a priest to bring us to the altar, Lord, because you've already torn the veil. You, our great high priest, have cleansed us and the altar so that we can just come boldly before your throne of grace to worship you, to cry out for help, to seek you for provision, to find your mercy, your love, and your presence. Thank you for the new covenant. Thank you for Jesus. So Lord, we, in return, we want to enter in all throughout the week, Lord, as your sons and daughters, drawing near, drawing close, because that's our position in you. And Lord, we want to be a holy people. We want to be obedient, not so we can get saved or stay saved, Lord, but because we just love you and you've been so good to us. Lord, thank you for making us your special treasure. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle John wrote in the book of 1 John chapter 5, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. When we love God and put him as the number one priority of our lives, obedience will come naturally. To love what God loves and hate what he hates is to be in close fellowship with him. We must never forget the promises of God and to settle our obedience to Him in every situation. Not doing so will only lead to compromise.
If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.